All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. This is a special edition because typically, if you follow us, we do our live shows on Monday nights. But this topic is such a hot button topic, and it's so important, we just felt like it would have been negligent to let another day go by without addressing it. So tonight, we're going to be talking about the Roe v. Wade decision that was just recently overturned in the Supreme Court. We have three amazing guests on tonight that are going to share their unique perspectives about about the decision and some of the ripple effects that it's going to have on them personally and in society. So first, I'm going to bring up Eric. At Stu, at Stu Pennis. I almost messed it up. How you doing, Eric? You got it, Dean. I'm good. Thank you. Appreciate all right. it. So, Eric, first of all, thank you for taking time with your family and joining us. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what brings you here tonight? Sure. Yeah, Dean. So, um, my name is Eric at Stu Pennis. I know it's quite the last name, um, but my uh, my primary role is a police legal advisor. Um, I've been practicing law for, for many, many years now, and I've always been in that aspect of the practice of law. I've always worked with law enforcement. Um, but one of the things that I think, or, or two of the ways um, that I think I can approach this topic is one from um, the perspective of my legal advising job. I spent a lot of time working with studying the Constitution. I consider myself a student of the Constitution. I'm an expert in nothing and a student in everything. Uh, but more importantly, I think I can approach it from the perspective of being a TFMR dad. Um, we had to terminate our daughter uh, for medical reasons. So I can bring a very personal story uh, to you, and I look forward to sharing that with all of you tonight. So thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. I wish it was under better circumstances. All right. Well, thank, thank you for that. And again, we are going to circle back to that, folks. Uh, next up, we have Diane Kirkpatrick. Diane is a friend of mine and former colleague. Diane, say hello. Hello, everybody. All right, Diane, same thing. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what brings you here tonight? Well, Dean, um, when you first approached me about this, I was like, oh, boy, this is um, very close to home for me. Um, um, What I bring to the conversation this evening is um, my own personal experience um, when I was a young woman um, and um, having the option of a choice. Um, So I can share a little bit about that further on tonight. So, and uh, I've worked in law enforcement for about 23 years. So that's the other part. See, if you didn't say anything, nobody would have known. They would have said like maybe two, three years, maybe five, but you know, you had to go and let the cat out of the bag. I know. <laughs> All right. Well, Diane, thanks for, thanks for joining us. And um, we look forward to hearing a, a little bit more about your perspective. All right. Last, but certainly not least a veteran to the show. And one of our favorites, Johnny Reddick. Hello, greetings. Um, Johnny, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. I just wanted to say um, I am so looking forward to hearing from both of our other guests. Um, I am Johnny Reddick. I am retired from law enforcement after 29 years. I retired at an executive level. I now uh, am a professor at a couple of uh, institutions here in the state of California. I also do coaching and consulting around leadership. And so this conversation is important to me as it is to so many. Um, I am a woman. I am a woman of color. I have my own personal uh, story and history around this very topic. But also I I want to approach some of our conversation from a leadership perspective on how we need to kind of move in the space that we're in um, and help people navigate it um, with some communication. So I'm just grateful to be a part of the conversation. All right. Well, we're, we're, we're happy to have you. 
Uh, so the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the overhead question of when you first heard about the decision, what did that, you know, what did, what reaction did you have? How did that make you feel? And how do you feel that that affected, affects your life directly? So I'm going to start with Eric for a number of reasons. First of all, a lot of people might be wondering, like, why is there a man on this panel? All right, because this is very much uh, uh, an issue that most people uh, believe belongs strictly to women. But it's important that you understand that here are difficult conversations. We try to examine all sides of, of, of a situation. And Eric's going to tell you exactly why we're doing that. So go ahead, Eric, um, if you could. Thank you very much, Dean. And um, I just want to say I want to thank you very much for holding the space uh, to allow this conversation to occur and um, to allow me to share from my perspective um, my personal experience with with the uh, with termination uh, for medical reasons. So um, I guess I should start off by providing a trigger warning to any of you listening that my story does involve um, the termination of a pregnancy. So if that doesn't feel like a, a safe story to hear right now, I totally understand. Um, and you might want to hold that for another time. And our story begins uh, several years ago. You know, we were trying to conceive for about three years, nine months, and 26 days. Um, <laughs> not that I haven't memorized. Um, before we actually received a, a positive pregnancy result. And um, in that time, my wife had gone through two medicated cycles, two IUIs, six egg retrievals, four embryo transfers, fresh embryo transfers, one frozen untested embryo transfer, um, two frozen tested embryo transfers and countless injections. Um, you know, I, I just can't believe her resilience and, and everything she went through just to get us pregnant. And um, so I have to say that, you know, our journey to creating our daughter, um, whose name is Hadley Maeve at Stupendous, uh, was very much wanted. Uh, she was so loved and she's still loved to this day. Um, what had happened was I thought the pregnancy was going well. My wife didn't feel the same way. She felt that there was something, something off. Um, and I, I attribute that to, to maternal instinct. Um, but sure enough, our world came crashing down when she went in for the fetal anatomy ultrasound at 19 weeks. And of course it's in the middle of COVID. She has to go in by herself. And so I get the call and, um, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of watching everything and everything looks fine. And so she says, yeah, the doctor left the room. They have to go look at things and they'll be back in a little while. So sure enough, time's ticking by. It's going by, going by and nothing's happening. So I drive home and I'm like, what's going on? She says, I'm still waiting. And the next call I get from her is a FaceTime where she is in tears and she just says there's something wrong with her brain. And I said, what's going on? And so we quickly realized that, you know, there was a doctor who came in, did uh, another ultrasound on her and said that there was fluid on her brain. Um, so Jill being <laughs> my, my wife being the incredible strong woman she is, uh, she immediately underwent a, um, you know, more ultrasounds and an amniocentesis to try to determine what the cause of Hadley's um, brain malformations were. And so the next morning we actually, um, we had reached out to a Boston area maternal fetal care unit to get a second opinion. Um, and you know, during that whole time frame, uh, the initial doctor called and said that he suspected it was this rare condition called rhomboencephalosynapsis, which is highly rare. Not much has been written about it, um, but the results are awful. And we still try to get into the, um, the Boston area hospital. We were able to do that. Um, we went to that hospital. We, she went through another um, rounds of tests. She did more ultrasound, 
um, an MRI. And the following day, you know, we kind of gathered um, in our house with our parents to take the call with the uh, fetal neurologist by Zoom. And, you know, she told us, look, you know, it's, it's kind of a spectrum. Uh, it could be, it could be this, it could be that, but it seems like it's really bad. Um, and, you know, she has something called ventricular megaly, aqueductal stenosis, and other global brain malformations. Um, she suggested that her prognosis was poor, and she just told us, hey, look, take some time over the weekend to think about things. So we took the next uh, 48 hours over the weekend to draft what we call our 20 questions to clarify all aspects of what we we're being told. And these are questions that as a parent, you never want to have to ask about your child. Um, like, you know, are they ever going to know who you are? Are they ever going to leave the hospital? Um, are they ever going to stand, breathe, eat on their own? And um, when we met with them the following week, the opinion was slightly different and it was weird and um, they weren't really clear anymore. So we said, you know what, that's it. We're going to a third hospital. So we went down to a prenatal pediatrics institute in Washington, D.C. area. Um, you know, so that following Thursday, we end up going down there. We drive down that day. Um, they took us in. They did yet another ultrasound, another MRI. Um, and it was later that day that the doctor got together with us, um, along with several members of his team. And we sat down and he said, look, you know, your, your daughter's outcome is very grim. Um, you know, if she does even make it to term, which is not likely, um, she's probably not going to be able to uh, see or hear. She's never going to recognize us. Uh, she's not going to be able to sit, stand, walk on her own. She's never going to live independently. She's going to have a shortened lifespan. Um, she's literally going to undergo medical procedure after medical procedure just to keep her alive, none of which are going to improve her medical condition overall. Um, she's going to have uncontrollable seizures that can't be fixed or ameliorated by medication. And she's probably not going to be able to breathe or eat on her own and would be in pain and suffering during the entirety of her short life. So before we even got up from our seats, we knew exactly what we needed to do. And the doctor even told us if there's something, if you're thinking about what I think you're thinking about, it's the right answer. And he says, you really have two options here. You can either um, bring your daughter into this world and all three of you will feel nothing but pain, or you two can take on the decision that I know you need to do and allow it so that Hadley no feels no pain at all. And you will feel pain the rest of your lives, but you'll never pass that pain along to her. All she'll know is your love. So my wife was uh, intent on delivering our daughter. So we ended up going in 23 weeks gestation the cap is 24 weeks here in Massachusetts. So we used as much time as we could to try to get the information we could. And uh, we went on on February 18th, 2021. And on February 19th, 2021 at 2.08 PM, Hadley was born. Um, surprisingly, she was born alive. And I happen to notice she was. And in the, the short moments that we had with her, you know, she, it was just pure love to be able to, to be with her. Um, you know, one of the things that as a dad, I kind of like thought about um, when I realized that she wasn't going to be able to be with us very long was the fact that like, you know, I always imagine my little girl like squeezing my pinky finger, you know, as a, as like a little baby. And, um, and sure enough, she did that for me when, when she was alive in that short period of time. And that just filled me with such joy that I'll, I'll carry in my heart for, for the rest of my life. Um, but we took the, the next 48 hours to stay with her, to sing, hold her, caress her. We, you know, dressed her, swaddled her, um, did everything that we possibly could. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to share our story. At first, it was obviously like, 
it was it was a difficult story to tell. Um, but I think it's so important to tell people the story from for a variety of reasons. I mean, from an infertility reason, one in eight couples go through inf infertility. Um, one in four babies don't make it. Um, they're lost because of miscarriage or or abortion or um, or TFMR or stillbirth. There's a variety of reasons, and so this does impact us. This impacts everybody. And it's really, really important that we get together and we have these difficult conversations. So when I heard, you know, the, the overturning of the Roe versus Wade decision, that's immediately where I went to. I went to our own story and the, the visceral reaction was just one of sickness that there are going to be other parents in this world that no longer have that choice. Um, and what would we have done if we found ourselves in that sh in, in those shoes? Um, so I know I've taken a fair amount of time and I apologize, but I just wanted to to share with you kind of our perspective and, and my perspective as a, as a TFMR dad. So thank you very much. Well, Eric, um, I'm sorry that you had to endure that. Thank you so much for sharing that. It takes um, a tremendous amount of courage to even be on a public forum and have this kind of a conversation, let alone um, expose that much of, uh, much of yourself. Um, so th on behalf of everybody who sees this, thank you. Thank you. Um, so, so Johnny, I saw you nodding your head. Um, while Eric was talking. So can you kind of just, you know, just piggyback, same question, just um, see, you know, tell us a little bit about how it impacted you when you heard the decision. I'm still um, feeling Eric's story. Um, thank you. I mean, you don't know how much you're probably helping somebody by being so vulnerable and sharing that entire journey. And I know that was a shortened version of it, um, but thank you for that because I'm still just really, um, absorbing that. Um, for me, Dean, it was, it's shocking like it is for everybody, uh, for something that has been out there for over 50 years, um, to help protect women and their choices and their rights. Um, and it's not that, it, I guess in my mind, I'm thinking women aren't out there just taking the lives of children that they you know, get pregnant with. Um, I, I'm sure our other guests is going to have a story, but for me personally, many people don't know me other than often who I was as a leader in law enforcement, but they sometimes forget that we're women and we have our own experiences. I was around 14 years old and um, due to my circumstances that I was in, I had to have an abortion. And it's one of those things that I had a parent who was responsible with me and accountable. But I can't imagine if those resources and access aren't available, what are young people gonna be doing? What are their choices gonna be? Um, for me, I, uh, as a woman of color, I grew up um, on welfare. We were constantly challenged uh, financially with what my mom was gonna be able to provide on the table as a single mother raising me. And so when this circumstance happened, um, I'm a child. You know, you don't know what you, you don't know. And the individual that it was, was older than me and took advantage of me as a child. And um, so I reflected on that when this decision came up because I now have a 25 year old daughter and she too is asking questions. And so for me on a personal level, it's very hard to um, comprehend that this has changed after all this time and how are we going to move forward? But because I have a 25 year old daughter, I want to have a positive interaction with her to give her hope that this isn't the end of, 
you know, the possibilities of, you know, you being able to have rights over your body, but we do have to navigate the moment. And I guess the bigger concern that came from her, um, and I have a 30 year old son uh, who's married and has his own son. So I have a grandson is mom, what other rights uh, do we need to be worried about that could be taken from us? You know, cause his wife and him are having the conversation can be taken from us in our country in these United States of America. And so it's creating this bigger conversation and worry and fear and concern. And then I have um, individuals who are reaching out to me because they're leaders in organizations who have employees where they have benefits that they've always had. But now what is that going to look like for them? What's that security for them going to be like? And then also, how do you have these conversations? And do you say anything if you're a leader in an organization? And I will say that you cannot remain silent. It is, it, this is a topic in a conversation where leaders in whatever industry you're in, you're going to have to figure out how to navigate it. It doesn't have to be standing on a, mm -hmm. you know, a stage and, you know, blaring out what you think, um, because that could go very wrong. But it is where you need to get with um, your HR specialists, maybe who your legal mm -hmm. <laughs> advisors and start thinking about how you're going to approach this. And so that's how it impacted me and a little bit that I can share. Well, all well put. Uh, you're definitely you're already thinking ahead because we're we're gonna we're gonna circle back to the ripple effects and what else could end up um, being reexamined that could cause uh, damning effects on society. So um, we're gonna stand by. We're gonna come back to that. Diane, same question: How did this affect you when you heard about it? And does this personally as this, does this hit you personally in any way? Yes, thank you, Dean. Um, thank you, Eric and Johnny, for sharing. Um, your stories as well. Um, I can resonate with you, Johnny, um, in the aspect that I was very young. I was 19 um, when I made the decision to have an abortion. Um, I wasn't in the ideal situation that I could afford to raise a child, um, things like that, not in a very good relationship at the time, you know, all those things that happen at, at young in life. Um, and so I, you know, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. And um, I was uh, bombarded with information, um, but I was grateful for the information that was available to me and all of the options. Um, and to me, that's what pro-choice means um, is knowing what my options are. Um, and um, I made the choice that was best for me. Um, when this happened, um, it was overturned. Um, I just really reflected back to like, what would my life be like right now if I did not have that um, choice? Um, and I, I don't think I would be where I am today. I don't think that I would be, a, you know, a contributing member of society in the sense that I am a career woman and a leader in, in, in my job and, and things like that. I think I would have, um, I think it would have set me back. I think it would have set me back and put me in a position um, that, you know, I might, you know, not be able to afford to take care of a child, become reliant on assistance and, and things like that. And like, you know, in, in a cycle that I, you know, I didn't want to repeat. Um, so, um, and I also reflected on, um, having a 23 year old daughter, um, who lives in a trigger state, uh, currently, 
Um, and she's, you know, her, she, we've, she's been tick-tocking <laughs> about this very topic. And um, I know it's, you know, scary for her. Um, so those are my things that have popped up, my own personal experience, and then also um, how this um, impacts my, my daughter. Well, again, Diane, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, folks, if you're just tuning in, you're just joining us, this is Difficult Conversations by Supply of the Why. And tonight we are unpacking the Roe v. Wade decision that was recently overturned. I'm here with Eric Atstupenis, Johnny Reddick, and Diane Kirkpatrick. If you want to contribute to the conversation, please put your comments in the chat. If you are on Facebook or YouTube, you can go ahead and do that. If you're on LinkedIn, sometimes there's an issue with uh, with us being able to see the comments. So if you have the ability, please jump on either Facebook or uh, or YouTube and, uh, and 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 contribute to the conversation. So as we're rolling along here, let me ask you this: What are some of the ripple effects? that the overturning of Roe v. Wade is going to have on society. So I'm going to go to Eric first. So Eric, if you could just break it down um, just as, as succinctly as possible, like what else do you think is going to come as a result of this? Because as we all know, these decisions don't just happen in a vacuum. They take other things in with them. So please tell us um, tell us what else you think could go wrong with this. Or go sure. Right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Mostly wrong, Dean. I'll be perfectly honest. Um, you know, I... The challenge for me is somebody be, that's personally impacted by this decision. Um, and so when I read it, I've, I've read the whole decision uh, twice now, um, all 213 pages, uh, because I'm trying to approach it from, okay, try to take out the ego, set that aside, set, set aside my personal feelings, and try to read it through like my, you know, the, the legal eyes. And I got to tell you, um, there's just no valid reason for this decision that I can find supported in the law. And I think the dissent did a phenomenal job. Um, you know, the problem here is that most of the decision of the opinion of the court focuses on the fact that the rights to obtain an abortion didn't exist at the time that the 14th Amendment, the due process clause passed, right, when that was ratified back in 1868. So the claim is, well, you know, that didn't exist at the time. Therefore, it's not something that's rooted in the American history and therefore is not something that we can kind of find within the um, missing prints of the Constitution. But if you say that, then so too falls away every other right that didn't exist at the time of 1868. And in fact, I think Justice Clarence Thomas's concurrence gives us you know, that idea that if he had it his way, there is no such thing as substantive due process, which is where this right to abortion is founded, right, from the Griswold case. Um, so, Eric, can I just stop you? Can you talk about substantive due process a little sure. bit for those of us that aren't attorneys? And sure, yeah. To, okay, so just Sorry, break that uh, down a little bit. Yeah, so in the 14th Amendment, right, when that was ratified, it creates this idea that everybody should be entitled to life, liberty, and, and property, right? So what it does is, and it and it provides that you can't remove that without due process of law. So what the court has found is that, well, there's one thing we call procedural due process, meaning you can't have something taken away from you, like your life or your, your freedoms to, to just be out in public without being subjected to some sort of notice and opportunity to be heard. Um, that makes perfect sense. What the courts have done over the years, though, is they've looked at that term liberty and they said, well, that means something, right? It's kind of like when we look at the First Amendment and what speech is, right? We know it means something, but it's going to take some time to figure out what that, what that means. 
And the thought process is, is that when the framers wrote the term liberty, it was meant to be something that would expound over time. Right? We know that the Constitution was written in a way so that it was meant to grow and evolve over time as society advanced and as technology advances. So that term liberty was also supposed to um, be one of those terms that, that advanced as society did as well. And that's where we find this substantive due process thing to provide us rights like the parents, um, rights of parents to raise children as they see fit, the right not to be sterilized without your consent, the right against forced uh, stomach pumping, um, the right to interracial marriage, adult use of contraception, um, the right for extended family members to share a home, the right against forced surgery, um, the right of uh, against forced administration of antipsychotic drugs, the right to consensual sexual orient uh, sexual relations in, in private, and the right to same-sex marriage. Now, the Clarence Thomas specifically called out like three of those rights. He specifically called out the right to same-sex marriage that was granted under Obergefell only in 2015. The right to consensual sexual uh, sexual relations in private under Lawrence versus Texas, and then last but not least, the um, the right uh, to obtain contraception. He specifically called those out, saying that he doesn't believe substantive due process is something that is really founded in the Constitution, and that as a court justice, he would have a duty if they were to be considered or reconsidered by the court to say that those rights don't exist either. And now I have to say, like the majority calls out several times that, hey, we're not saying this impacts anything other than the right to abortion, but the legal analysis they use can seriously be used to undercut all of those rights. So I, as a, as a legal guy, as like, you know, the constitutional dork, I get very concerned about that, I have to say. All right. So I'm going to pause you there and I'm going to go to Johnny because I know that look, Johnny's got a, Johnny's got something she wants to share. Go ahead, Johnny. Um, I was just listening very intently because uh, oftentimes where we're getting our news is a concern, uh, which affects, right, how we feel and how we're influenced by everything that's going on. And what I appreciate about you, Eric, is you're just giving the facts. You're giving the facts based on, um, you know, what you've read and giving us a legal standing um, and understanding and grounding on what is there, right? Because when I listen to the right or listen to the left on whatever those news are, it's very um, dramatized and sensationalized and it's charged with so much emotion when you have just said what they've said in so many different ways is the concern for our constitutional rights period. And, and he's called out three of those that could be at some point also in consideration. Um, but I, I guess what I was leaning into, Dean, is this has such big implications um, for us and our democracy, for us as people, as Americans, and, um, you know, for us as just leaders in our positions that we are, because a lot of the people that um, you have listening to you look for leadership, guidance, and wisdom from supply the why through these difficult conversations. And um, I was just in my mind thinking, we don't have those conversations in the workplace that have to do with these dynamics. And I know I said this offline, but these delicate dynamics that have to do with something so sensitive as this, but so many other topics. But this right here is, is a conversation that someone like an Eric um, can help people. And so I, I think it's fantastic you have him at your organization that can help navigate the facts. People just need to understand the facts. We're not trying to sway opinions or beliefs, but when you deliver the facts and people can take that and begin to reason for themselves, 
then they might make different decisions. But we don't give the facts a lot because sometimes we don't talk about it. We let the narrative become the narrative. And then do we just room and. Johnny, I think you froze up there. Um, so what I will do is I'm going to go over to Johnny. Uh, you, all right, we got your back. You froze up for a little while there, and it's too bad because you were getting emphatic. You got the hands involved the whole line, and you and you just froze. So um, I, if you could just really quick, just maybe the last 15 seconds said, of what you're saying. thank you to the Eric's of the world for the facts because that's what we need when we start trying to have communication, and that helps create clarity, and that helps us to be able to kind of navigate the moment that we're in. So thank you. All right, so I'm going to bounce over to Diane. So Diane, so same question that I was asking Eric about any um, uh, additional ripple effects that the overturning of this decision will have on society. And then Johnny um, um, threw gasoline on the fire by bringing up the clarity aspect or the lack of clarity aspect that a lot of these type situations seem to have. There, you know, there's, there's people's viewpoints, but it seems to be kind of muddled in with a lot of extra. So if you could just talk a little bit about that. Um, another thing that um, I had contemplated bringing into the conversation, um, I'm, I'm coming up on uh, one year of being a breast cancer survivor. Um, in that realm of being a breast cancer survivor, there's medications that I have to take, um, which um, discludes a lot of other options for birth control. Um, and so I don't think people really look at the far reaching, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's just so far reaching that this decision is affecting people's ability to make everyday choices in their individual personal lives. Unintended consequences, maybe? Um, just throwing that out there. It seems like that's kind of where you're going, that there's far-reaching unintended consequences. Possibly. I mean, but I feel like this is the Supreme Court, so they should be looking at all of the everything. Eric's story, Johnny's story, my story, anybody else on the planet's story, because everybody's story is unique. Um, and their reasons for um, being pro-choice vary based on their circumstances um, and what they may encounter or what they've previously encountered. So um, I, I love that Eric, like Johnny said, that he was very factual. It's, it's because it's really, um, you know, I'm on social media and everybody's fired up on both ends of the spectrum. Um, and and it's, it's like, how do you get through the muddy waters of what the reality of it is. And the reality of it is people being able to live their lives um, and make their own decisions and choices that work for them. Um, and not because this one says that this is what you should do, or this one says this is what you should do based on whatever the belief system is or reasoning. Um, so yeah, I mean, thank you, Eric. You just, it's very clear cut factual, also very concerned um, about uh, Clarence Thomas's um, wording. Um, I did, I was, I started to think about people I know, you know, um, that that would impact. And I was like, oh my goodness, where are we? Um, you know, I saw a funny meme that said, uh, set your, set your clocks back 50 years, everybody. Um, 
<laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's, that's what it feels like. <laughs> you saw that. I saw one that said, uh, uh, snip, snip, men, snip, snip. <laughs> basically calling for some, you know, accountability and equality on the other side. But um, I, just just to kind of put a, a, a thought to what you were saying there, Diane, it's like these unintended or these implications that really haven't been thought out are, we don't even know. We don't even know what they're going to be. These are just the ones that we're thinking about now. We don't even know what the outcomes of all of uh, this change is going to create, and we won't probably for for years. So, to that point, Johnny, and thank you for that. I want to ask Eric a question, and then I'll then I'll go back around the horn. Is it possible to make a decision like this and and truly examine all the different um, possibilities that that could come from uh, from from the ripple effects of, the, of a decision like this? I'd like to think that um, the court would make such decisions when they're making such far-reaching um, conclusions. But I'm afraid that this decision is more of the result of judicial activism than it is a consideration of what the fallout is um, in taking all of those, those issues into consideration. We've seen a marked change in the court's um, decisions lately. The court's analysis, the tenor and tone of the decisions, and um, you know, it's it's kind of made clear that this is just judicial activism um, that started. And some of us believe that this issue really started back up in 2018 when um, the Mississippi law was first passed, and they slowly decided when they were going to to challenge it. Um, I don't know. I I don't know how as a court. In, in this day and age with this particular decision, you can actually consider the entire fallout um, from a very real possibility. And I, I'm, I don't even wanna say possibility. The very real consequences of this decision are that women are going to die. Um, they're going to still need to obtain healthcare, which is abortions. And in doing so, they're going to try to seek them out in any way that they can. Um, and unfortunately, people are going to get seriously hurt. Um, they'll, some will die uh, and some will be burdened with the financial consequences or the emotional consequences um, of having to endure going through a pregnancy that, you know, they, they don't necessarily want for whatever reason. And the key here is that they have the choice to make that, that decision. And Diane, you kind of brought this up talking about social media and the idea of how polarizing it is. And, you know, um, Johnny too, you had talked about with the news, everything's so polarizing because it's, it's all like pro-life versus pro-choice. But I think we have to work on changing the dialogue. It's not pro-life versus pro-choice. It's pro-life versus um, anti-choice, or it's pro-life versus pro-abortion. It's not, it's not pro-life versus pro-choice. Pro-choice was the middle ground. That was the option. And Justice Kavanaugh said that, well, no, we have to get rid of that because we have to set the clock back to zero. No, the clock was at zero. The zero, the no sum game is that everyone has a choice. So if you choose to have an abortion, you have the right to do so. If you choose to bring somebody in, you have the right to do so. And that's one of those concepts that we hold sacred in our US constitution. I have the right, I have the choice 
as a citizen to speak on public matters, um, you know, of matters of public concern in a public forum. I have the choice if I'm arrested to remain silent. I have the choice to have a jury of my peers decide my case against me. I have a choice whether or not I want to carry a weapon under the Second Amendment. It's all full of choices. And that's really the zero sum. That's really the zero um, in uh, on the scale. So I think we need to do a better job of saying, hey, you know, it's not necessarily two ends of the spectrum. The the pro-choice is really the middle of the spectrum. That's giving everybody the right to do exactly what they, they'd like to do, consistent with our Constitution. So what you're saying is you get people from both sides. We get together. We have a conversation where both sides get to express their views. And somewhere in there, there's some middle ground to be achieved, right? It may be a difficult conversation. Maybe even a difficult conversation. <laughs> so, Eric, while you have the talking stick, uh, there's a question in the chat for you. It says, Eric, how will you break this down from state to state? Is it ultimately left up to each individual state? Under the current state of the law, each state has its own ability to determine whether or not abortion will be legal, under what grounds it will be legal. Some states have the right and they have the absolute right to go ahead and ban abortions and claiming that viability starts at the point of, um, of uh, fertilization. Now, I can tell you as somebody who has gone through as many IVF cycles, uh, fertilization of an embryo does not mean that they're viable. Um, so fertilization is literally as soon as the, the sperm and egg meet and, and the egg becomes fertilized, a state could claim that that's the point of uh, viability or that's the point of conception and therefore um, an abortion could not occur. Many states are taking the position that, well, the ones that are um, enacting laws now, they're looking at maybe six weeks or 15 weeks or whatever the case is. But again, you know, from my perspective, and I can't speak to, to any other um, woman's perspective, but I can speak about mine. We could not have determined feed, um, Hadley's fetal abnormality prior to 19 weeks. So 15 weeks wouldn't, wouldn't help um, for us, but it's ultimately left up to all of the states. And then the question also becomes, if you then go to travel to another state to obtain a, an abortion or to obtain medication for an abortion, what type of interstate conflicts are gonna occur? Um, so there's a lot of potential fallout here, a lot of unknowns, a lot of questions that are going to have to be resolved, a lot of challenges that are going to have to be brought up to the court. All right. Eric, well said. Mike, we hope that um, that answered the question. It certainly did for me. Johnny, can you talk a little bit about what Eric just alluded to, some of the interstate conflicts that are going to happen? Uh, even, even so much as if you go from one state where it's banned to another state where it isn't, um, some of the financial burden issues that might that might come as a result of this. Well, um, I mean, that's obvious. I mean, that's an obvious um, challenge. What what I'm hoping is there's so much awareness um, because of social media. So we have negatives and positives, but social media has amplified every message and changed the way um, they influence um, key people who make decisions, um, important people. So possibly there could be some things that rise up in grassroots ways or even bigger ways that might be able to help people who need the help they, they need to get versus it being, I think about my, my mother even, you know, she was born in 1933, she's passed now, but um, she had family members who, you know, needed or, or needed to have an abortion or wanted to have an abortion, but they didn't have any of those resources. It was all illegal to do those things. And like um, Eric was saying, People are going to die trying to find resources and services. So possibly this might be an opportunity also for those to, to stand up 
and be able to create something that provides assistance and resource um, to women who are seeking that kind of assistance. And so, I mean, I, I think about my span of influence and my span of control, Dean, and I cannot control the fact that the Supreme Court has made this decision and that at some point maybe it could change. Am I in a state where um, we will be able to have and continue to have legalized abortions? I do. I live in the state of California. And, but I think about my, my family members or friends who don't. And so um, I just think, what can we do within our control and within our span? How can we make a difference, not just in our organizations, but in our communities? We sit back and have these conversations, but how many of us go out and are have an advocacy, actually are part of nonprofits, do community work, want to get involved? You know, how many of us vote like we should be voting and paying attention in our local community to our vote because that matters on who's going to be guiding the governance of our cities and our counties and creating all of those access and opportunities. So, um, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> hey, I, you, you had that was glued to the screen. You could, you could have kept going on that, on that one, Diane, um, so much to comment on there. What about what either Eric said or Johnny said resonates with you? Um, what Johnny just mentioned about, um, grassroots, um, things, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm always on social media, um, and it's already happening. Um, I've seen things out there that says, hi, my state is a safe camping state. If you want to go camping, um, you can rest at my house um, before you travel back and things like that. So it's already happening. People are already like subliminally putting things out there to like start um, because this is an immediate thing in many states. Um, I, I don't know much about it. Eric might be able to speak a little bit more on it, but you know, those trigger states where they had already contemplated Roe v. Wade being um, overturned and um, it, it's, it, it's scary, um, but people are already probably in these situations. They're probably already in these situations where they're like, where am I going to go? What are my options? Um, you know, this place, they might be shutting down clinics in some of these states. I don't know. I, I can't say for sure, but you know what I mean? That's scary to me. So Eric, you brought up, I mean, well, Diane, thank you for that. You brought up a good point. And Eric, could you talk a little bit about the, the burden of being a trigger state right now? What exactly that means and, and how that works? And what I want everybody to think about is because everybody at some point has had some, we've all had some piece of law enforcement in our lives. Who enforces this? So please, Eric, if you would. That's that's an interesting question, Dean. So, I mean, I can tell you from um, my brief research that the states that had trigger laws that went automatically into effect, um, meaning as soon as Roe v. Wade or as soon as the Dobbs decision came down, immediately Arkansas, Kentucky, Missouri, Oklahoma, South Dakota, and Wisconsin um, obviously went rates right on board. Um, I don't know exactly what those provisions are, but they do in some regards limit um, the ability of a woman to get an abortion. Obviously, Mississippi is one of those trigger states as well, but um, I believe that under their law, it needs to be 10 days after the decision by the Supreme Court or the time it gets certified by the Attorney General. There's um, Wyoming, North Dakota, in, uh, Idaho, Tennessee, and Texas 
all have laws that will take effect. I think it's 30 days after the decision. Um, Louisiana and Utah have one that's kind of like tied up right now. And um, I think there's actually in Alabama, Ohio, and South Carolina have laws that are that are kind of tied up right now. Um, so essentially what had happened is that, you know, in each of those states suddenly, particularly, you know, Arkansas, Kentucky, Missouri, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Wisconsin, Miss Mississippi, in those states, we have individuals now that are automatically subjected to that state's interpretation of to what extent a woman um, should have a right to uh, have an abortion. Um, and obviously that just that that disparate treatment of women um, and how each state can look at it and say, well, we're only going to consider women to be this much of a person, apparently. Um, so it's it's really concerning that, um, you know, we have these laws that are automatically in effect. You know, I think Johnny and Diane, you brought up great points that right now is the time to get active, to be to be active. Um, you know, to go out and, and wave the and hold the posters and and um, and stand next to our, our sisters across the country, because it's it's really scary, like what's going to happen. Um, so it's important for us to go out now to be together, to advocate. And maybe there's something that Congress can do. Maybe Congress can codify this. You know, shame on them for not having codified it for the past 50 years that Roe v. Wade was a law. Um, or was case law at least, uh, but Congress can still act. And so we can urge Congress to take that action. And I think that's something where we, we need to advocate on behalf of, of all of the women in this country now more than ever. All right. Johnny, what say you? Yes, Eric. <laughs> that's what I say. That's what I say. I say is yes. Um, but I wanted to to just kind of put this out here in the law enforcement space, Dean, because our uh, sisters and brothers across the country are going to have to face the ramifications as they have with all the protests that have started up. And I just would, if we have those that are listening that are law enforcement or are the community, this is one of those protests where we don't need to come in violence. We don't need to come as law enforcement uh, like we feel like we need to be militarized. Yes, we need to be protected, but they are not the enemy that are out there um, in these protests. These are people that are in pain. They're in fear. Their rights are being removed. Um, you know, things are in jeopardy. So yes, we will have, like we know, there's always a faction of people that come out to be disruptors. And, you know, we've got specialized teams that are trained to go in and pull them out and extract them and allow the peaceful protesters to protest. But this is a time of, um, to me, of understanding and compassion and a level of uh, humanity and human dignity that we need to express for us as law enforcement and for us as people in the community, because there's too many protests that end in violence with people getting hurt. And um, and then, you know, all those outcomes that we have to investigate right at a leadership level and the optics on law enforcement. Law enforcement is called to do things that the regular citizen is not. And the community has to understand that often law enforcement is the extension of things like this. And now they have to go out and protect and serve everybody to be able to assemble and have their uh, First Amendment rights. And so I just want to strongly say how much I support our, our sisters and brothers in blue and all of those that are out there protesting. These are just such, 
I don't know, they're volatile and sensitive and emotionally charged and people just need to be cognizant and emotionally intelligent when they are wearing that uniform and going out there to do this job. So Johnny, uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna throw another pot onto this question really quick. You are in charge of XYZ Police Department in one of the trigger states. You get a call that, in a, that, that one of these clinics is still operating when clearly they're not supposed to be. Someone calls you and wants you to do something about it. What, what do you do? Like, how do you, how do you prepare your people for that? Well, preparation should be, I think I mentioned in the beginning, it's part of communication. It's already having these conversations, not just me as a leader of the organization, but making sure my chain of command is having those. That although we're going to have to go out and be an extension of the law, because that's what we do, it's how we go out and be the law enforcement officers that we need to. We don't need to rush in and shove people around and beat people up and go out and you know curse at them and handle things that way. We can go in and maybe just like we would if it was civil unrest for something else, maybe there's somebody we can talk to mm -hmm. and say, hey, can we have a conversation and see how we can kind of do what we need to do for your employees, for everybody that's here. So we can take, you know, if there's protesters, there's a lot of different strategies. We don't just have to barrel in Mm -hmm. and be responsive. Um, so let me take the protest piece out of it for you and then Diane. So no protesters. They're just calling and simply saying this place is, is still is still operating. For example, very much like the mask mandate. You know, when, mm -hmm. I was a, when I was a street sergeant, we'd get calls for somebody going to a store with no mask. And it's like, well, what, what do you want us to do? Like we go and we tell somebody to put a mask on. They tell us to, you know, go, um, you know, expletive off. Then what? Now what? Where, where do we go from there? You know, I mean, that's what I'm talking about, that kind of a situation. Well, you know, as a, as a, for me, when I'm thinking of the law enforcement leader hat, if I am called and we are, uh, have to be responsive, then we have to take some type of action. But this is where our whole decision-making continuum can happen on what that looks like when we, we respond um, or how I'm going to have my staff respond. And so this is, to me, this higher level of policing that you've had on many of your um, episodes before that mm -hmm. we need to continue to encourage from our line level all the way through our supervisors and managers on how we go out and we conduct business and how we treat people with procedural justice and, you know, how we're communicating at a professional level. That's why this has to be a professional profession. <laughs> I say that all the time um, because this is just another one of those opportunities for us to be able to do better, especially when we know better. All right. Diane, really quick, can you can you add on to that? All right. So you as as a possible somebody who's moving up the ladder maybe one day, how would you handle that? You get called to this, there's no violence, there's no protest. They're just saying this this place is still operating. What do you do? Um, from as a human with empathy and compassion and have a conversation. Um, I think um, anytime you approach any kind of difficult topic. Um, or situation with empathy, um, let the other side be heard um, and navigate it that way, uh, they'll be more receptive to cooperating um, with what you're trying to accomplish um, on, on a scene. So, and that's just any kind of call, you know? So um, I'm a big proponent of that. And Johnny was right. I'm going to say it. Women are usually a is. At it. She usually is. <laughs> Women are a little bit better at that than men. Um, <laughs> it's just the way it goes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, empathy and compassion. Um, because just by this panel, um, 
all of us are potentially affected by this decision, whether it be our children, um, whether it be our own personal experiences. And so um, we bring that to the table um, if we have to encounter this type of a situation. All right. Well, well said. Um, you're not going to believe it. We're down to about eight and a half minutes left. Usually I like to give a 15 minute warning, but we're, we're down. It's about 52 minutes in. So um, this has been an amazing conversation. So what I'm going to do now, let's switch tracks um, from the morbidity of this conversation. And let's talk about positive. What do you have going on right now, um, Diane? Like, how can people follow you? How can people get in touch with you? What projects do you have going on? Anything like that? You're laughing. Go ahead. I, I'm working many things uh, right now, personal things, like trying to get into grad school. But um, if they want to email me at my personal email address, they can do that. It's um, Diane K at Roslindale.us. It's D-I-A-N-N-E-K at Roslindale.us. Um, if they have any questions or you know anything like that, Feel free to reach out. I'd be more you than happy LinkedIn? to connect. They can connect with you on LinkedIn, yes? Oh, LinkedIn, yes. Diane Kirkpatrick at LinkedIn, yes. All 100%. right. Well, Diane, we'll circle back for the for, for a final word, but that's what Diane has going on for special projects. Eric, in about in a I know you got about a month's worth of stuff going on. So what what's cooking in your world? How can people follow you? How can people learn more about what you do? And if they want to connect with you on this, um, would it be okay to do so? Sure. Yeah. So in my professional world, um, obviously, we're very busy, particularly here in Massachusetts right now with um, us becoming a, a new post state. I know it's brand new for us, but we're getting there. So there's a lot of questions, a lot of uncertainty, um, a lot of angst and, and growing pains in that process. Um, apart from my, uh, my professional life and my personal life, um, I work very closely with Empty Arms uh, Bereavement Support, which is a fantastic uh, bereavement support group for any, any parent who has lost a child. Um, so I work closely with, with the groups there. I assist in facilitating um, some of the group discussions. And, um, you know, I'd say you're more than welcome to reach out to me on Facebook uh, or, or LinkedIn. Um, it's just my name as long as you can spell it, you should be able to find me no problem at all. And I am absolutely more than happy to have a conversation, uh, to chat, to email, text with any of you regarding um, your feelings, regarding the emotions that you feel about this decision. I'm happy to hold that space for you and to just sit in it with you um, and, and mutually grieve uh, the, the lasting effects of this decision with you. So uh, please, feel free to reach out to me as an ally. Um, I'm, I'm proud to assist in any, any way that I possibly can. So thank you. All right, Eric. Miss Johnny. Yes, um, Eric, thank you for using the word ally. I think um, we don't emphasize that enough um, that men are our allies. And I say that because I do a lot of speaking engagements for women um, to help lift them up, um, motivate, inspire, um, encourage growth in our leadership. But without our allies, we are not as successful. So thank you for that. Um, for me, you can reach me on LinkedIn, Johnny Reddick. It's just that simple. Um, there's no particular project that I'm working on that's significant enough for me to bring up in this particular conversation. But, but what I want to, because this is so powerful to me that all of the rest of that, it just sounds like work is, to encourage anybody that's actually um, taking the time to be engaged with this conversation, to reach out to any of us here to further the conversation, but also 
when we are engaging in our social media space, take time to engage in the social media space to make comments, to share your thoughts, to tag us and bring us into your conversation so that we can support, um, be advocates for you as well. And that's one thing that Dean, you do absolutely fantastic um, in your social media space because this is how we stay connected these days. And so I just wanted to advocate for that. And um, again, just thank you for having me here. This has been absolutely amazing. Folks, again, this is Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. If you if you found this conversation to be helpful, if you are having a difficult way, a difficult time trying to figure out how to even begin these conversations, that's why we do this. Sometimes it, instead of you having the conversation yourself and not knowing how to start, maybe you sit down with, with a friend or with a family member and you just watch this and let this, this what we've done here, be the catalyst for your conversation. There's so many different ways to get in and out of these uh, conversations and to leave with your relationship intact. And that's the whole reason that, we, that, we, that we've come together. And that's why Supply the Why started in the first place. So if you found this to be helpful, please subscribe, like, share, and comment on any of the social media platforms. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on YouTube. And, uh, you know, every every little bit helps, and every little bit helps us get the word out there and gets awareness out there. So, folks, that's going to end it. We're going to end a little early tonight, a couple minutes early, because there's just no way we could introduce another question and keep it under an hour. So, with that in mind, thank you, Eric. Thank you, Diane. Thank you, Johnny. You've been amazing, and, and I can't thank you enough for, uh, again, taking the time away from your family, from your jobs, and all your special projects to do something extremely courageous and put yourself out there for this very difficult topic. So thank you very much. Thank you. All right, everybody, thank that's going to do it for us tonight. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hashtag supply the why. Good night.